The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. On this episode of Jaws of Justice, we're going to commemorate United States involvement with warfare in the world because it's the anniversary of August 6th and August 9th when the United States detonated two atomic bombs over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The aerial bombings together killed over 100,000 and maybe over 200,000 people, most of whom were civilians, and this remains the only use of nuclear weapons in an armed conflict. Kansas City has an integral part of that history. At the time of the development of the nuclear bomb and operations at the Manhattan Project in New Mexico, shown in the film Oppenheimer, the Bannister plant in Kansas City, Missouri employed persons to make trigger parts for nuclear armament, and many employees there at that time and in the years following died from the effects of exposure to radioactive materials. PeaceWorks Kansas City holds an annual event on Memorial Day of each year to commemorate those lost lives and to call for an end to nuclear bombs. The Bannister plant has been destroyed. However, the National Security Campus, an extension of the Bannister plant, continues to operate and is one of the largest employers in Kansas City. While they are no longer making radioactive trigger parts for nuclear warheads, they make over 80% of the electronic and mechanical parts for U.S. nuclear weapons are made or procured there. Year after year, peace activists have walked across the property line at the gate of the National Security Campus to demonstrate opposition to nuclear warfare. Today, we're going to begin the hour with a recording of some of the 13th annual Memorial Day remembrance of those who died from making of nuclear parts in Kansas City, Missouri. The first speaker is Kimmy Igla, a PeaceWorks KC board member. She introduced Theodore John, leader of the local Veterans for Peace. Next, Priest gives a spoken word performance. Charles Carney leads the crowd through an exercise to build peace. Then Yolanda Hewitt Vaughn, a local physician and a member of Physicians for Social Responsibility, tells us about the horrors of war. Brianna Crawford, an indigenous Cherokee Dakota Sioux and a member of the PeaceWorks board, called on us to respect what the earth has given to all of us because we're only visitors here. Ann Sulentrop and Kristen Shear recounted their lobbying journey to Washington, D.C. on behalf of Nuclear Accountability's D.C. Days. Finally, stay tuned to learn of PeaceWorks KC Back from the Brink, a political effort to end nuclear warfare. For the second part of our hour, Jaws of Justice plays from Atsuki Mori's presentation at All Souls Unitarian Church that happened on Hiroshima Day, I Can Dream a World Without Nuclear Weapons. She's a nurse from Warrensburg, Missouri, who came to this country in 2001 from Osaka, Japan. On a recent visit to Japan, she was able to meet in Hiroshima with a survivor of the atomic blast whom she had met as a child. The nephew lost the sight in one eye from the Hiroshima blast and is now active in ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. 
Now, our show. The campus we've marched to here is called the Kansas City National Security Campus, NSC, opened in 2014. And while the NSC isn't handling deadly chemicals like the previous plant, this facility is maintaining the U.S. nuclear stockpile, providing over 80% of all non-nuclear components in support of nuclear production nationwide. And there's a growing movement calling for weapons production to stop. And the more we educate ourselves and each other about the reality of weapons production in our city and beyond, the stronger this movement grows. And there's a nuclear-free path forward where we don't have to live in fear of accidents or earth-ending war. And we have some speakers today who are going to share some more about what this movement is doing in our city. So thank you for being a witness to these issues today and spending your Memorial Day with us. First off, I would love to introduce you to Theodore John, who heads up our local Veterans for Peace chapter. Please welcome Theodore. My name is Theodore John, and I served in the Marine Corps from uh, 1986 through 1992. Uh, during Desert Storm, Desert Shield, I witnessed firsthand the atrocities of war. I was assigned morgue detail if my unit was, was going to see combat. During the training, I viewed a dead Iraqi soldier. Upon the viewing, I remember the initial rush the thrill of seeing my enemy vanquished. Then I realized, now this guy, he's just like me, in a situation he didn't want to be in, although he was on the losing side. Imagine if that if things were different, we could have been friends. After the events of 9-11, I was in shock, witnessing the eagerness of our country to go to war based on very flimsy reasons. The news reports caused me panic attacks as I was reminded of the horrors of war. We were killing hundreds of thousands of people and causing massive suffering for unjust reasons. I first learned about Veterans for Peace and the peace movement while living in Iowa City. In the fall of 2011, I participated in a production of The Telling Project. It was a scripted play performance where veterans and family members of veterans told their stories of their involvement in the military. A member of Veterans for Peace came up and gave me a card, and I filed the card away thinking I might want to look them up. In the fall of 2012, I learned how there are American oil companies helping the Kuwaitis slant oil from Kuwait into Iraq and stealing Iraq's oil. That was one of the reasons why Saddam invaded Kuwait. I also learned that the CIA staged a coup to help him get into power. This evaporated any held belief that I had that we were out the good guys. I came to learn that my military service was just being part of the muscle for the mafia. I was already dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress, moral injury from my time in the Marine Corps. But learning that information drove me into deep depression. I once held pride in my service. I now viewed it with, with disgust and regret. I thought I was going crazy. I didn't know where to turn. I sought treatment through the VA and ended up eventually in a lockdown psych ward at the St. Cloud VA Hospital. From there, I went through a several months intensive mental health program. And after the, I completed the group, I moved to Minneapolis and reached out to the local Veterans for Peace group. I was desperate. I was looking for other people who could tell me that I was not crazy that thinking that war is an insane practice for humanity to partake in. I was looking for people who faced the truth about their service and tried to repair some of the damage that they had done as well as stop the madness from perpetuating. I was relieved to find like-minded people, much like many of the people here today. Being with them literally saved my life. To stand up against industrial military complex takes the sort of bravery that is rarely witnessed in society. And I ask you all to come, you know, come join us. Let's make the world a safe place for all of its children. I brought with me a bell that I made during an art project for the Veterans for Peace group up in Minneapolis. At the end of World War I, all throughout the nation, on the 11th day of the 11th hour of the 11th month, all throughout the country and throughout Europe, bells were rung signifying the end of war. 
So right now, I'm going to ring this bell that I made. You can see this the symbol. It's kind of a beat-up piece symbol. That piece, although beat-up, is still rugged and is still enduring. So as I ring this bell, I want you to imagine with me that the echoes tear down that disrupt the energy of this energy plant. That it tears it down and that a new way, a new vibration is made. Would you like to come up and share your spoken word with us? A brief spoken word by Priest. Welcome, Priest, everyone. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Self-destruction. They build weapons of mass destruction. Healthcare. Warfare. Who cares is warfare? When a mother stares over a folded flag instead of her child being there. War stares. Cold War. The U.S. wants more WMDs. What for? The masses act destructive, following instructions, building weapons of mass destruction. Our position is sitting on the easy button. Greedy global guns shoving economies, military cars until heads heat up and it's coming. Great like to fall out. Markets suffer doubt that the rest of us don't want to know about. That's just a short tweet. Quick piece of a piece that we did for this nuclear non-proliferation movement a while back working with physicians of social responsibility. Peace works, Jane and Henry Stover, physicians and solar trop. We're working with a lot lines for nuclear accountability and think outside the box. Yes. Charles is a member of the board of directors of Peace Force KC and he is here to lead us in an exercise. In a society that tells us we always must have more, more money, more winning, more prestige and fame, bigger houses, bigger food portions, we prescribe a new potion, slowing down for peace and living simply. So I encourage you now to think of ways that you can slow down for peace and live more simply. But first note that this doesn't mean that we still don't have moments of creative tension, such as we're about to do by committing civil disobedience. But we also slow down for peace. Think about your way. Is it writing poetry? Is it practicing the slow arts? Is it knitting or embroidery? Is it practicing a musical instrument? Is it tending a garden? Or is it just in your everyday life activities, like reading a storybook to a child, petting your dog, or your cat, or your goldfish, <laughs> taking a walk and enjoying nature? Some of you know that two summers ago, I did a 253-mile peace walk from Wichita to Kansas City. But I didn't really feel like I was doing much for peace. I know I wasn't hurtling down the road at 70 miles an hour leaving roadkill. I was just having fun and thought, I don't know what good this is doing. But then I had this revelation. This is exactly what peacemaking is. I was cultivating relationships. I was enjoying nature. I was treading lightly. I was doing no harm. And so, especially on the Flint Hills Nature Trail, I felt this profound interconnection with all the tiny bugs and the blades of grass and the eagle and the coyote I saw and all the rodents. 
but especially the amazing peacemakers who walked with me. And so what I came to is there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. So let's say that together. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Alrighty. Now, next up, we have Dr. Yolanda Hewitt-Vaughn. She did civil resistance to the tune of nine months in federal prison for resisting the Iraq war and leads our local chapter of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Welcome, Dr. Yolanda. Yes, welcome. PSR is one of 650 partner organizations in the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. And this ICANN was awarded the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize for its successful efforts to pass the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. And then in 1985, PSR also won a Nobel Peace Prize because of its work for a nuclear-free society. And the, the very first thing that we said was... Um, where there is no cure, prevention is the only answer. And so that has been PSR's role all this time. But it's increased its um, connections in the 1990s. And it pointed out that we had to connect the environment and also health and what other things were, were happening as a result of the monies that were being spent and taken from other areas. One of the things that I just would like to talk about today is some of the, the statistics that go along with that. On January 24th of this year, the bulletins of the atomic scientists inverted the new uh, setting for the doomsday clock, which serves as a warning of the threats posed by nuclear weapons, climate change, biosecurity, and disruptive technologies to humanity. This year, the bulletin moved the clock to 90 seconds to midnight, the closest we have ever been to midnight or doomsday. One of the reasons for this is basically the fact that we have been having going for peace through through power and through wars, okay, versus a foreign policy that focuses on diplomacy. We have continued to feed the military-industrial complex with myths, and I would say not just myths, they're total lies. Ever since the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution that got us into the Vietnam War, that was a lie. And every single war since then that we've engaged in have been based on nothing but lies. Since 2000, the list of villains for this foreign policy has increased, and we have actually had wars that included uh, wars against the Taliban in Afghanistan, Saddam Hussein again in Iraq, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, Putin in Russia, and recently we're now throwing <laughs> words of not diplomacy but of, of uh, warmongering towards Xing uh, Xiaoping in, in China. And so we, we as the citizens of this country need to realize that every single congressperson in our Congress has is beholding to this military-industrial complex. There isn't an area in the country that has not been played really well by this complex, okay, because they have put funding for every every single uh, district uh, in, in the Congress that comes through them, and that's how they get the votes that they continue to get. And they, they talk about it as being for the defense of, of the United States, and yet none of these wars have been defensive wars. There, have been, there has been no issue of defense for this United States. If you look at the Cost of War Project from Brown University's Cost of War Project, and since September 11th from uh, 2000, there have been 4.6 4. million people have died 
um, as a result of wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Syria, Libya, Yemen, and Somalia. Most Americans don't even know that we were at war in Yemen or that we were supporting uh, wars in some of these countries because they weren't even on the front page a lot of the time. So over the past 16 months, Congress has approved more than $113 billion for the war in Ukraine. And I will remind you of what uh, Henry Kissinger said years ago. If you're an enemy of the United States, beware. But if not, being a friend of the United States can be fatal. And the people in Afghanistan will tell you that the last 20 years of, of involvement in the war in Afghanistan has left them with so much less than what they had before. And if you look at what happened before the Russians came into Afghanistan, it turns out that the war in Afghanistan for the Russians was actually precipitated by the United States. The military-industrial complex saw that it would be a good place to sell weapons and to continue to build that industry. And so they essentially taunted the, the Russians into coming in after the Mujahideen, and they weren't going in until we actually did that. And that has been that has come up in some memoirs that have just published last year. So it's it's interesting because the initial events in Afghanistan were precipitated by U.S. foreign policy that none of American citizens knew about, and they continued with the with the Russians seen as our enemies there. And then we came in, and for the next how many years? Twenty years. We've continued to help destroy Afghanistan. If you look at Iraq. Iraq was a country that was one of the most advanced of the countries in the Middle East. They had universities. They had national health care for everybody. They had just a, a, a variety of things that happened. Not, not saying that they didn't have a dictator. They did. But that country had, you could send your kids to school and not worry that they were going to get shot or killed as they walked down your block. They don't have any of that now as a result of being, quote, our friends that we went in to save from the dictator. So their standard of living is dramatically, you know, it's been a bomb back to the Stone Age, as was quoted after the first Persian Gulf War in the 1990s. The Republicans didn't want to do anything about increasing the debt ceiling unless we cut funds to programs that help human beings in this country. Anytime they've wanted to f find money for war, they've never discussed cutting the funding. They've never had to do that. They just raise the debt ceiling or they just use the money. They just spend the money. They don't even discuss it. So the U.S. government debt in 2000 was $3.5 trillion, which is 35% of the gross domestic product. In 2022, $24 trillion is what our U.S. debt is, 95% of our gross national product now. Suppose that the government debt had re remained at a modest 35% of GDP, as in 2000. Today's debt would be $9 trillion, as opposed to $24 trillion. Why did the U.S. government incur the excess $15 trillion in debt? The single biggest answer is the U.S. government's addiction to war and military spending. Thank you, Yolanda. Excited to bring up our newest board member to PeaceWorks Kansas City, Brianna Crawford, an indigenous leader and board member of PeaceWorks. My name is Bri. I want to thank this organization for giving me this platform. I want to thank all of you who have come out today to be here with PeaceWorks Kansas City as we walk, we rally, and we remember the lives that were taken by the nuclear weapons complex and its demand for more production. PeaceWorks is here to take a stand against the modernization of nuclear weapons because our resources are better served going to environmental action. Yes. Okay? Yes. Not 
a nuclear future. We are here to raise awareness of the impacts of nuclear weapons production has had on Earth and on our communities. It is 2023 and the final warning on the climate crisis has been made. I feel like our government is not concerned about what the future has in store for the generations to come. I just want you all to take a moment and imagine a world where there is no hatred, there is no violence, there is no lies, just truth, just peace and love. Thank you. Our Peace Works leaders from our spring lobbying trip, Ann Solentrop and Kristen Shear. Um, they're here to share more about the power in the lobbying experience. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, we had five people go, and this was the biggest group that we've had go uh, since the, about 2011. And uh, it was a very successful trip. We met with each of the senators in Kansas and Missouri and the representatives from the Kansas City area. And we found out some aides didn't know anything about nuclear weapons. When one asked me, do we still make nuclear weapons? <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, we found out also that Honeywell is trying to promote uh, nuclear energy. And they talked to somebody in Kansas about that. So it was a, a fantastic trip. We got to rub elbows with these uh, people that have been working against nuclear weapons and researching it for decades. So they're just the true leaders, and they, they are on the ground wherever nuclear weapons are made and wherever the waste is. So they, they know deep knowledge about it, and it's so inspiring to be with them. And it's, we, we have creative ideas come up. So we also have a fall meeting, the Alliance for Nuclear Accountability. Every year we go to one of the sites. So you get a deep dive into the issues at that location. We have a panel from, of people, uh, leaders from that particular area. So I encourage anyone who's interested to come forward and talk to me, and you can come to the next one. And I'll pass it over to you. Thank you, Ann. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to join you. It really was eye-opening in so many ways, and I so appreciate it. I am definitely going to be going again. What I want to tell you about, though, is one of the uh, conversations I witnessed while we were there at DC Days with the Alliance for Nuclear Accountability. We took up what they called a thorny conversation. What do we do with radioactive waste that we have already generated? It's a thorny conversation because it's frequently asked. There are no good answers. And in our own community, we disagree about what the answers should be. Everyone agrees that we need to stop making it. But what of what has already been produced? And what of that yet to be produced between now and the eventual conclusion of this most dangerous and irresponsible practice? What can be done? Jeff Fettis, a lawyer with the National Resource Defense Council, proposed a central collection repository. He said it would require true community consent. He said that does not mean buying off underserved black or brown or indigenous communities with false promises of good jobs or needed economic investment. Poor communities that are only convenient because they cannot afford to say no, because they do not have the political power to refuse. Yeah. It would require a proper environmental impact study that looks one million years into the future for, the env for an environment that could or might 
legitimately be suitable or stable enough to contain this most dangerous substance destined to be a problem for that, that far into the future. No place has yet estab been established that can do it right. The every answer currently proposed impacts communities only convenient in their disadvantage and lack of political power to stop it. We heard of some of the stunning accidents that have happened that do and will continue to plague us. Children that have contracted cancer and communities that will continue, that have and will continue to lose people. It is a reality that we have embarked upon. It was not an easy conversation to have and no significant conclusions were made, but the thorniness of the issue was appreciated by all. And that in and of itself was impactful as we all headed home to continue the work necessary to end this insanely irresponsible practice of producing a product destined to end life with no known way to protect life in a satisfactory way from its poison. Thank you. Uh, I would love to see more of us going to DC next year, and I'm definitely looking forward to the fall meeting. Absolutely. All right. Uh, good to see all of you today. PeaceWorks Kansas City is attempting to further the work of Back from the Brink here in Kansas City. You will see that Back from the Brink refers to the United States leading a global effort to prevent nuclear war by, number one, working for a verifiable agreement, nuclear armed states, to eliminate their arsenals. In other words, the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The second, renouncing the option of using nuclear weapons first. Third, ending the sole unchecked authority of any U.S. president to launch a nuclear attack. Fourth, taking nuclear weapons off of hair trigger alert. And fifth, canceling the plan to replace the entire nuclear arsenal with enhanced weapons. So those are the five parts of the back from the brink effort. So we want to extend that to all of you, we want to encourage you to support a House resolution, House Resolution 77, which basically calls for support of these five points. You can do that through uh, letters to your particular congressperson. Thank you. You can also reach out to us through our social media. We have a QR code you can scan to follow our Instagram or TikTok. We are trying to spread information. Get information to the masses through the internet. It's the way of the future. Thank you, everyone, for your powerful shares. The efforts of American colonialism and imperialism are embedded in each of the systems that our country is built on. And us standing here is saying that we do not support these actions. We don't support these actions across the ocean. We don't support it being produced in our city either. Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts. 
This is the Jazz Doc bringing you jazz in the afternoons every Thursday from 1 to 3 p.m. I will play jazz from the 1940s to the present with a focus on the well-known and lesser-known artists and their compositions and try to provide an interesting history of the musicians and their songs. Hopefully Thursday afternoons will be entertaining for jazz lovers and those who want to explore and learn more about the genre. This is the Jazz Doc every Thursday from 1 to 3 p.m. Are you making a positive impact in your community? Let your story be heard through KKFI's Community Voices series. We're on the lookout for inspiring individuals and organizations that are making a difference. If you have an initiative you'd like to highlight, head over to kkfi.org communityvoices and share your story with us. Together, we can create a stronger and more connected Kansas City community. Next on Jaws of Justice, Henry Stover of PeaceWorks KC opens our broadcast of Atsuki Mori's August 6th presentation at All Souls Unitarian Church, I Can Dream a World Without Nuclear Weapons. PeaceWorks and I thank you for this opportunity to remember Hiroshima Nagasaki, which took place 78 years ago when over 200,000 persons lost their lives. Today, we live on the edge of extinction with more larger nuclear weapons. The threats of using these weapons and continued production of nuclear weapons at our local weapons production plant south of the city. We cannot undo the tragedy. We mourn the tragedy and seek to learn from the past so that tragedy is not repeated, as stated by George Santayana. We will hear a bowl full of peace. We will hear a poem by Lou Mountainay, and you will hear from our guest, Aksimori, who will reflect on being born in Japan and earlier this year having been back at Hiroshima. Uh, I'm gonna be sharing a bowl of peace today. It is a true story. Itatakima, traditionally spoken before eating a meal, this Japanese word means we humbly receive food. No one knows how old grandmother's bowl is. No one remembers who made it. No one can count how many times the bowl has passed from mother to daughter. But everyone knows grandmother's bowl is precious. The city of Nagasaki sits along the Japanese sea. Mountains rise up around the harbor, and houses made of wood with paper windows dot the hillsides. On hot afternoons, Sachiko and her brothers Aki and Ichiro chase dragonflies as cicadas buzz their summer song. In the evenings, Sachiko's family gathers together. Mother places grandmother's bowl in the middle of the low table. As always, the bowl offers good things to eat. Squid, eel, octopus, and udon noodles. Sachiko and her family press their hands together and bow their heads. Itadakimas, they whisper. As Sachiko grows older, the sounds of war come to Nagasaki. The clanging of hammers building torpedoes. The marching of soldiers training for battle. The cries of those whose husbands, fathers, and brothers have been killed in the fighting. War for Sachiko means less and less of everything. Now grandmother's bowl offers only bits of mackerel floating in broth, but the family is still together. Even sister Misa and little Toshi learn to press their hands together. Itadakimas. The sounds of war grow ever clearer. The grunts of boys and girls digging air raid shelters into hillsides. 
the wail of air raid sirens echoing through the city, the rumbles of enemy bombers flying overhead. Sachiko is eager to start school, but after the first day, the school closes. Too dangerous, says the principal as he looks up at the sky. The family still gathers each night for the evening meal. Now grandmother's bowl offers only wheat balls floating in boiled water. Mother says, eat everything, children. Every bit is precious. Sachiko and her family press their hands together and bow their heads. Itadakimasu. Summer comes again. The hot month of August arrives. On August 9th, Sachiko's father visits a sick friend. Mother prepares breakfast. Aki, Ichiro, and Sachiko wait at the low table. So do Misa and little Toshi. Suddenly, the air raid siren begins to wail. Everyone runs for the shelter. They leave everything behind, even grandmother's bowl. Together, they huddle in the cave with their neighbors, hoping no bomb will fall from the sky. Finally, a siren blares all clear. Everyone sighs. Outside, Sachiko's friends ask if she would like to play house. Yes, she would. Sachiko and her friends laugh together and make mud dumplings with their small hands. An enemy bomber rumbles high above the clouds. No one notices until it is too late. Sachiko looks around her. What happened? Father, mother, Sachiko, and Misa survive. Brothers Aki and Ichiro do too, but not Toshi. Little Toshi is killed in the blast. Through the day and into the night, fires burn across the city. Early in the morning, Sachiko's father makes a decision. We must leave Nagasaki. A train is coming to take us away from the city. We must go now. Follow me. Everywhere people are suffering. I'm so thirsty, voices whisper. Water, please, please water. In a small hospital away from Nagasaki, Sachiko's brothers are now very sick. No one understands why. No one understands it is because of the radiation from the bomb. Aki dies, then Ichiro dies. Sachiko and sister Misa become ill. So do mother and father. Ice chips help soothe their burning throats, but nothing can stop the pain, not even the end of the war. Two years pass before Sachiko's family returns to Nagasaki. Sachiko's father digs through the rubble that was once their home. Something glimmers in the dust, something green and shiny. Grandmother's bowl. It has survived without even a chip or a crack. Everyone in Sachiko's family has touched this bowl. Everyone has eaten from it, even Aki, Ichiro, and little Toshi. At their evening meal, Sachiko's mother places the precious bowl in the middle of a wooden crate. Sachiko and her family press their hands together and bow their heads. Itadakimas. As cicadas sing their summer song, another August 9th arrives. In the morning, Sachiko's family kneels in front of the wooden crate. This time, Sachiko's mother fills grandmother's bowl with ice. Sachiko's mother speaks softly. We must never forget what happened on this day. Remember how a chip of ice eased our thirst? As the ice melts, let us remember all who suffered and all who died. We must pray that such a terrible war never happens again. Five years pass. The radiation from the bomb makes more people sick. Sachiko's sister becomes ill and dies. Another five years pass. Sachiko's father becomes ill and dies. 
Each August, Sachiko's mother fills grandmother's bowl with ice. Sachiko and her mother watch the ice melt. Together, they remember what happened. Together, they pray for peace. Then Sachiko's mother becomes ill and dies. In August, Sachiko fills grandmother's bowl with ice. She bows her head as the ice melts. Grandmother's bowl is now Sachiko's to care for. Sachiko fills grandmother's bowl with good things to eat, just as her mother did. She presses her hands together and bows her head. Itadakimas. One August 9th, 50 years after the war's end, Sachiko fills grandmother's bowl with ice. She can no longer be silent about what happened to her. She must tell her story. The world must know that such a bomb can never be used again. That evening, Sachiko stands before a group of children and shares her story for the first time. She begins, what happened to me must never happen to you. And the children listen. We try to remember, but we really don't. We were not there. Many of us were not born yet. But their message is vital. So we try to remember. God must have wept hard that day. We can never know the terror and fear they suffered, the physical pain and thirst and nausea, the loss of family and friends and hair and skin. We can never know such disorientation and feelings of abandonment. Blinded and deafened by the blast, they must have wondered, why? Why? Never again, never ever again. When we remember the lives at those of at Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, we know we must act in their stead. Do the things they would do if they had lived, if they were here. Through photos taken long ago, we remember. Through poetry, prayer, and the folding of the cranes. Through the lighting of the candle and the sound of the chime. Through our ceremonies, symbols, and songs our vigils and our votes, our petitions and protests. Through careful listening to Hibakusha survivors, we continue the story so all can see and all can hear and never forget. Until the last nuclear weapon on Earth is abolished, this old scar will fester on our hearts. We remember as if they were here. The author of this poem, Lou Montanay, passed away on April 21st, 2019, of cancer. I introduce to you Oxy Mori, a nurse from Warrensburg, Missouri, who came to this country in 2001 from Osaka, Japan. On a recent trip to Japan and to Hiroshima, she met Habakasha. These are survivors of the nuclear blast, and she had met them as a child, a nephew of her grandmother's former fiance, and this nephew lost sight in one eye as a result of the Hiroshima blast, and this nephew is now active in ICANN, 
the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Let us welcome Aski Mori. Thank you for uh, giving the opportunity to share uh, what I learned about Hiroshima today. My name is Atsuki, and I live in Warrensburg, Missouri, with my husband and children and three cats. I came to the United States 2001 from Osaka, Japan. So as you can see, I'm not old enough to experience World War II, or I never lived in Hiroshima. So the story I'm going to share with, share with you today is entirely based on what I learned from Hibakusha and um, the history that I learned. So my story starts with the memory of my, my grandmother. My grandmother was born on August 29, 1915. She became one of the very few female physicians in the empire of Japan back then and dedicated her entire life to serve um, socially vulnerable population during the and after war. She was very calm and gentle person and she was brave. Um, she never really talked about war, but one story that she shared with me uh, stick with me. Um, so during the war time, whenever she heard a siren to alarm the air raid, she would go up the rooftop of the hospital with the doctor's coat, with the stethoscope uh, in her hand, and then she waved her hand to the, the pilot, you know, airplane, um, bomber jet. Anyway, so she told me that one time she saw the, the pilot salute flew away. So can you imagine do that? <laughs> um, anyways, um, she, um, my grandfather and my grandfather, uh, um, they built a psychiatric hospital. Then um, we lived right next to the hospital, so she was on call every day. So it didn't matter how late she would go up and then see patient whenever she needed. She's always humble. She never complained. And uh, I lived with, this, lived with her until I was 15, the only twice in my entire life that I saw her crying. The one time was when she lost her best friend for over 50 years, and the other time was when we went to Hiroshima and we went to the uh, museum. I was about six years old, so my memory is really vague. I don't remember anything about the museum, but I remember that my grandmother, uh, anyway, there's a booth at the museum, like small booth, maybe four or five, and um, the, there's a headset, and then you can listen to the story of the Hibakusha. And I turned around, and I saw her quite crying, crying, and then I felt like I saw something I shouldn't you know, see, so I didn't ask what's going on. Then we went to visit a good friend of my grandmother, Mr. Weki. I remember the last name, Weki. And uh, he was gentle, older, older man. And um, so we were, we were at his house talking. And I saw um, skinny, sad-looking man coming home. He was the son of Mr. Oiki. And uh, I saw his face. And then he had one eye shut close. Then I, I felt like I, I saw something like I shouldn't be like asking any question, but later I was told that he lost his eyes because of the atomic bomb. And uh, so my mother, he, she didn't tell me about her life um, at all, so I didn't ask. And I had no clue, no clue what kind of life she lived when she was young. 
after she passed away, I learned that she had a fiance, and he died. Uh, um, he was also a physician, worked with her, and then he actually was the brother, younger brother of the gentleman I met in Hiroshima. So um, we found the album of my grandmother. She was, um, what do you call it? She like, did the uh, neat freak organize. Um, the one album was a um, picture of her fiance. And they start with, you know, they're having fun, uh, working together. And the last page was the, the picture of him when she said goodbye one last time. But we didn't know why he died. So when I first learned about Hiroshima Nagasaki Remembrance, um, the piece uh, works does was, I believe that was 2018. So I always wanted to share the, the truth about atomic bomb. Um, I had quite enough of what I heard. So I asked Mr. Stover, I mean, I think email, if I could speak, so that I shared my story with, um, about my grandmother then. Then I wanted to know more. I was, there were so many questions. So I wonder if I could find a man I met. Uh, I know that Mr. Weki is long gone. So uh, I know his name, Weki is his name, and he, I know he lived in Hiroshima. So I Googled him, and I went to images. I found him right there the man with iron one eye shot. And uh, I, I, mean, I knew that was him, and then uh, fortunately they had uh, uh, his name on it. So I look, looked him up, and he was a retired professor, um, retired English professor at Hiroshima University. Then, um, so he had email address. So I sent him an email, but then I also look for, I'm impatient, so I look for the, his phone number, in the white page, and then I found several of the name of the same name, and then I called them like international call. And the first one was his his house. So I was able to um, talk to him about my mother, my grandmother, and her fiance, and about himself. Um, her fiance, my grandmother's fiance, died from tuberculosis in 1941. So my grandmother had visited him uh, where he's been treated so many times in Hiroshima. So she became really close to healthcare workers, people who cared for him, for him very much. So the tear that I saw was for Dr. Weki, the nephew of her love, um, loved person for the injury and the loss of many people's lives in Hiroshima. So we exchanged emails once or twice a year. Um, then this summer, we went back, my husband, two sons. We went back, to, we went back to Japan for first time in 15 years. Then um, we decided to go to uh, visit Hiroshima. And then I wonder if I could meet him. And uh, luckily, he didn't have any plans that day. So we were able to meet him and then uh, ask questions. So he was only six months when, he, uh, when the atomic bomb was dropped. His father, Mr. Weki, was a teacher, but at, this, at that time he was drafted, so he wasn't home. So after the breakfast, his mom was washing dishes and then he was in the crib. When she saw the light, bright light, she covered him instantly, but this glass shattered the glasses. The glasses cut sliced his eyes like 
you know, we, like with the, draw the line with the, the scale, scale, yes. So she um, immediately took him to the uh, nearby um, the army, the surgeon, the doctor, uh, because they were really close. Uh, that was kind of the usual thing. And he was able to um, get the, the shot to prevent infection. But unfortunately, the wound itself reached to the retina, so he lost his eye and then part of his eyelid. So anyway, she was hurt too. I mean, one of her finger, the wound was deep enough to reach the bone, but she didn't realize that was that deep. His family has lost the, the family member. Um, his uncle was 12 at the time, and he was at the factory working. Back then, all the students under 12 were sent to work, uh, over 12 were sent to work to the factory or other place because all the young men are gone as a soldier. So he was one kilometer, kilometer away from the epicenter. Uh, one kilometer is like, I don't know how much, really close. Um, so the grandfather of Dr. Wakey went to look for him. And there's a people walking around with the burnt skin and then trying not to the, let their skin sl sliding off and wanting water. And then he was like, check every charred body on the ground, turn the body around and then look for his son. But he couldn't find him. So he went to the school that, that was the emergency gathering place, but he couldn't find him. And there was a, a classmate of him, he was alive that time, said, well, he is, the, his, his uh, son is right next to him. He could identify, identify the body just be, by the belt that he was wearing because his whole body was burnt to charred, very, very uh, horrible. So Dr. Wiki, he didn't remember all of this, uh, but uh, he heard this story repeatedly by mothers, family members, neighbors. So his, this horrible story and his physical injury was, was enough to cause him a PTSD. So every single year he got sick. When the, the August 6th getting closer, he got sick and he could not hear or see anything related to atomic bomb, even though he read the book of the, the, you know, the Holocaust or other brutal events um, during the war, but he could not see anything. Um, when he was 50, he finally overcame his fear um, and was finally watched a movie about Hiroshima with his family. And he realized he had the PTSD all along, and then he started sharing his experience. Not many Hibaksha is still not willing to talk about their experience. Um, they're traumatized. And older generation died without sharing their stories. So some people, including himself, realized that the, they need to share their story to the younger generation. So after he retired from his uh, teaching position, he helped to create the mandatory, the peace course for about 2,000 freshmen in university, uh, Hiroshima University. And he's, he's still teaching classes, and he also participates in activity for the abolishing nuclear weapon and went to Oslo when uh, ICANN was awarded, um, no, received the no, Nobel Award. Um, as a supporter, he was not. He went there to see 
So um, he didn't only talk about the past. Uh, he also shared his concern about the present and the future. Radiation, radiation exposure has a long-lasting effect on the human body. It causes defect in the DNA. So still, it's been 78, 78 years people are getting sick and have cancer. And um, so because of the fear of this DNA defect, the, the hibakusha had been discriminated, become target of discrimination. The women are refused to get married because of the fear of birth defect. So people are suffering. And um, one other thing he, he uh, talked about, and I really uh, was surprised, was it's, it's issue of the black, black rain. The black rain is the rain that right after the atomic bomb dropped and then uh, it caused the, to, to, to rain. This rain has all the debris, uh, the dust that contains contaminated by radiation. So people are thirsty. They are drinking those black rain. Or people just casually there. Or people coming into the Hiroshima to look for his, their family. They're exposed to the radiation. Luckily, um, um, data regarding Hiroshima was well kept. So people in Hiroshima was able to get the assistance. Uh, there, the government issued assistance program, um, so they can get assistance to treat their uh, illness. But Nagasaki is a different story. So they didn't have any data. So people who actually was exposed to the black rain, to this day, they're not getting any support. So one uh, physician in Hiroshima contacted uh, uh, contact, uh, contact an uh, atomic bomb casualty committee that was built by Truman back then and collect all the data. So the, he contacted them and then they, were, they, gave, they, gave, uh, they gave this physician the data. So now this physician, um, we were able to plot all the data to show the, how much radiation that people in Nagasaki actually got exposed. So, but they're still um, fighting in the court. You know, the government is not doing anything. So that was mind-boggling to learn that after 78 years, there are many that has not getting um, assistance from government. So when I first talked on the phone in 2019, I told him about that there are many Americans who are eager to learn about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and who remember the pain the people, the people experienced and they strongly supported the abolition nuclear weapon. He said, knowing that there were Americans who know the truth about atomic bomb is giving him a hope for abolishing the nuclear weapons. So after you know, over 40 years, my memory and then one picture connected um, Dr. Wicken and I, and I think this is the miraculous, and um, I think, I feel like my grandmother is telling me, like, you're in the United States, it's my job, it's mission to share the story of him. So um, um, on behalf of Dr. Wiki, I thank you for seeking the truth about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and understanding the uh, real danger of nuclear weapon, the only place that nuclear weapon can exist in history books. Thank you so much.
if we are to live out the principles that the Unitarian Universalists have, we must have a world without nuclear weapons. They dare not be used. They are so destructive. If you would like to know more about the Treaty uh, on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was adopted in 19, I mean in 2017 by 122 nations, including the U.S., and which has gone into a force, and 68 countries have now made it part of their own domestic law, enforceable, uh, we can provide you with more information. Thank you, beautiful people. you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 